Hello, and welcome to The Real, the podcast for culture and entertainment media. I'm your host, Mark Olson. On today's episode... We're just days away from the 92nd Academy Awards, and this week I had a chance to have one final chat with my entertainment colleagues about our thoughts and predictions for what's to come at this year's Oscars. But first... To kick things off, I'm here with Carolina Miranda, who covers art and culture here at The Times. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. And now, you've recently written a piece that sort of takes a unique angle on the Academy Awards. It's about the use of architecture in this year's Best Picture nominees. Every year we do a piece that looks at films from the perspective of architecture. And I think this year the big story about the use of architecture in film was the film Parasite, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, because that story is about architecture. It's about this very humble semi-basement apartment and the family that occupies it and then this very sumptuous minimalist a mansion, essentially, inhabited by this other family. And so we decided to broaden it and look at the Best Picture nominees and look at how the architecture that is used in these films, the production design, helps tell the stories that the narratives are moving forward. And now, aside from Parasite, were you surprised by how much you found in the movies this year? Well, I think I'm always interested in how directors use architecture, and there's always some surprises. This seemed to be a big year for mid-century architecture. You had The Irishman, uh, you have Ford versus Ferrari, and you had Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which all straddle that era of 50s, 60s, early 70s. But I think besides Parasite, there were some really, really interesting uses that I saw. I think Jojo Rabbit was a really striking use of the, of, of the way in which architecture helped tell the story in which the exterior of the house is this kind of run-of-the-mill village German Baroque house, but the interior of the house is modernist. And so it becomes where, like, the house is this kind of bright little cocoon that feels more modern than all of the exteriors that are shot. So here is the story about, you know, Scarlett Johansson, who's hiding a young Jewish woman in her house and obviously has a much more progressive attitude than the Nazis. This is the tail end of, of World War II. And the house helps tell that story. Modernism was quite reviled by Hitler and the Nazis. So to have this house that is Baroque on the outside, but quite modern on the inside with all of these Art Deco flourishes and these very bright and rich wallpapers, I think helps tell the story of who she is and of that era and what design signified in that era. And now tell me a little bit more about Parasite. I mean, the story of the movie is about a rich family in this very upscale modernist mansion and this kind of poor family who find a way to essentially take over the house from them. And the house itself kind of becomes a character in the, in the movie. I mean, it certainly is like the object that a lot of the action centers around. What, what was it about the architecture in Parasite that really struck you? Well, I think definitely the house, both houses, I think both the, the poor people apartment and the rich people house are both characters uh, in the story. And But I think why so many people were talking about the architecture of that minimalist mansion in the house is because it so fits into this ideas of shelter porn, like Dwell Magazine, Architectural Digest, all of these magazines that feature these, you know, 
minimalist, perfect, uh, you know, not a piece of Tupperware clutter or a strewn magazine inside. Like if you go to my house, I have the piles of New Yorkers, you know, these are perfect environments. And so it took something that we currently as a society just relentlessly fetishize, uh, you know, the island kitchen, the beton brute concrete, the hardwood trim, the stained hardwood trim everywhere. I mean, this this is the kind of house that you salivate over. It takes something we, we fetishize. It inserts these curious secrets in them, and they show that all is not well in this thing that appears perfect. And I think what was most remarkable about the use of architecture in that film is that I assumed when I first saw the film is that they just shot it in an existing house. But actually, Bong Joon-ho and his production designer created that house for the film. Like, they literally created this character from top to bottom. And in fact, they built it on an empty lot. They built a good chunk of it on an empty lot in Western Korea. And then the second story uh, scenes all take place on a on a back lot. But the house itself occupies actual territory. They wanted to create a setting where you would have the giant picture window, you know, framing a beautiful garden. So they built this fantasy of a home that is actually designed for perfect uh, film screen ratio for the film. And I think the fact that things go so horribly wrong in this perfect setting shows all of the things that these settings obscure. And I was so struck in the story that you wrote about what you said about the movie Marriage Story, the Noah Baumbach film, which is, you know, a contemporary film and captures in some scenes the kind of the clutter you were talking about of a contemporary home. But also there's this, some of the most devastating emotional scenes in the movie take place in this kind of sad dad apartment that the character played by Adam Driver like moves into. And it really is like the worst apartment in Los Angeles is just so dreary and yes. and terrible. And so for you what what does it mean or what do you what do you think when you see bad contemporary architecture used in a way that makes it bad? Yeah, I mean, well some of that architecture is like that and I'm always more for an honest portrayal of architecture than I am for a consistent glamorization. I think that film was interesting for the way it used that sad dad apartment as you describe it because you go in and literally it's this place that has been drained of color. If in their apartment or in uh, her mother's house, you know, you, there's clutter, there's art on the walls, there's photographs. You go into this place and it's beige carpet, beige walls, a beige air conditioner, beige furnishing. It's literally one of those places that, you know, you, you kind of like, okay, I need to put together something quickly. Here's some furniture that I found. And it's such the cookie cutter, almost like dingbat 1960s, 1970s apartment that's immediately facing the apartment across the way. Like this is not, this is not a happy, glamorous apartment, but it's also how people live. And I want to be sure to ask you as well about some things you said about the movie 1917 and the way in which, you know, young soldier on a journey to get a message to the front line and the sort of hellscape that he travels through. And as he's going in particular through like a bombed out town, you you, you wrote about that really beautifully in saying that it seems like it's kind of the end of architecture in a way. And what struck you about those sequences as he's moving through these kind of bombed out desolate landscapes? Well, it was interesting because when I saw that film and I was thinking about the story, you know, it's like I'm watching and watching the film and I was like, well, what am I going to write about architecturally? Like there almost is no architecture. You know, it's the trench. It starts in a field and then you go to the trench and then you go to the battlefield. And then I realized that really the only architecture you're seeing is this architecture of conflict, of 
violence. And then he arrives at this town that you can tell at one point was this a scenic, picturesque French village, Acouste on, on Maine, which is uh, in France. But it has now been bombed to rubble, and there's very little left of it. And he is trying to get through this location at night. And there are flares going off. There are bombs going off. There are snipers. It really is this feeling of this moment in which design, the things that we build for ourselves to make ourselves comfortable, to give ourselves shelter, to give ourselves pleasure, don't matter. It is the end of architecture. And it's a really powerful, powerful scene, an incredible use of rubble. I think <laughs> it gets best picture, best best use of rubble at the, at the Academy Awards. <laughs> well, we'll see if that's a category the Academy decides to add in uh, upcoming years. And thank you so much for, for sharing these insights with us today. This is such a terrific piece that you've that you've written, and uh, people can read it online at latimes.com or in print on Sunday. Thank, thank you again for being here. Thank you for having me. And now, it's time for Glenn Whip's Awards Minute. So we're in the year 2020, you know, the Oscars, 92nd year, and everybody every year is talking about how do we make the Oscars appealing to younger viewers. I mean, why would anyone want to sit through this three-plus-hour show? There's some good ideas floating around. So what we're left with is watching the Oscars and looking for clues for what's going to be in that final envelope. And I would say this year, one clue you could watch, just to keep you interested here, because I know probably you don't care deeply about who's going to win Best Production Design, but among the nominees, it's a category in which both Parasite and That Great House and 1917 and All Those Trenches, they're nominated in this category against each other. If Parasite wins production design or if 1917 wins production design, you can kind of think, hmm, that's, that's going to be the best picture. I kind of think that's going to be the key category this year. And that's why we still... Pay attention to film editing, production design, cinematography. They're all key categories that will tell you what movie might be winning Best Picture in that last award. Thank you, Glenn. And please stick around. We're going to have one more big Oscar conversation here before the Academy Awards on Sunday. So I'm joined by my colleagues, Mary McNamara and Justin Chang, along with Glenn. Thanks, everyone, for, for being here. Sure. Glenn, just to sort of clear this up for folks. So we're having this conversation actually on the day that Academy Awards voting closes. So as we're having this conversation, there's a few hours left that Academy members can vote. But just last night, the Academy sent out a tweet that sort of confused a lot of people. It was for a prediction app they have that's going to be coming out so you can play along at home. But people thought it was like a winner's list. Is this just another example of the Academy sort of stumbling over themselves while trying to, to do something new? No, I, I think that Parasite is the best picture, Mark. And, and we can celebrate and we can pre-write all those stories and... It's going to be awesome Sunday, historic Yay. celebration. <laughs> but now, it's sort of on a serious note, huh. do you I'll try? <laughs> I know it's that time of the season, but do you feel like this year in particular? I mean, the the kind of the major change this year has been the shortened awards calendar. Whether it was in the nominations portion of the year or in this kind of phase two post-nominations portion of the season, what kind of impact do you think just the calendar, the shortened season, has had on this year? 
I mean, it seems like it has made for a more uniformity. I mean, as we've talked about, I think, with the acting, it's been the same four people winning the Globes, SAG, BAFTA. It's Renee Zellweger. It is Joaquin Phoenix. It is Brad Pitt. It is Laura Dern. Would that have been the same? I mean, two years ago, in a longer calendar, we had the the same four people winning all the awards, too. So I don't know if that's a result of the shortened season. One thing, I mean, you look at the nominations, there were more nominations given to fewer films. So I don't think that people had as much of a chance to watch movies this year. I mean, I think when 1917 wins Best Picture, I wonder if the calendar had been two weeks longer, if people had just a little bit more time to reflect as they did say with Moonlight La La Land, if Parasite might have triumphed with a little bit more time for reflection. I think that somebody pointed out to me the other day that this is the first year in a while that you've had four movies score 10 nominations or more. Mm. Like that's a huge, pretty big number. There's no like Titanic level 13, 14 nomination leader, but you have Joker, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Irishman and 1917, all in the 10 plus club. And that's rare. And I think it tells you something, especially below the line. It's those same movies keep coming up in a lot of the craft technical categories. And I don't think that's a very healthy state of things. I do think that if they'd had more time to contemplate, they would have done more work, been more discerning, finding those, you know, do something besides just giving, say, The Lighthouse a cinematography nomination. Maybe that gets into productions. I don't know. It's just there's there's a lot of, I think, craft contributions that went unrecognized. And I think people just put those big movies on their ballots by default almost. Mary, do you feel that way? I mean, once the nominations came out and, say, Hustlers, The Farewell, a lot of movies that felt like they were sort of in the mix that ended up not getting any nominations at all, do you think that that, do you have a sense that that's because of the calendar, that people just didn't get far enough down the stack of screeners that they had stored up for the holidays? You know, I don't don't know. And I don't know whether it's a question of people not getting to watch the movies because... I am not a member of the Academy, and neither is any of my kin. But I would think that Mm. you would, like, kind of watch movies if you're a member of the Academy. And the movies that you're talking about are not—were not obscure movies that no one was—you know, that that was not—that were not part of the conversation. So I would think at some point you would actually go see that movie in the theaters, maybe even, support your industry. So this idea that, like, Academy members don't have enough time to watch all the movies because they only have four weeks to watch their screeners, well, if that's what those people are doing, then you should kick them out of the Academy. So, no, I don't think that that's it. I think maybe the truncated window— kind of the conversations were not able to advance further. You weren't able to have as many like, well, what about, you know, or what, you know, let's talk about this, or which has been true in other Oscar seasons where, you know, and I'm not saying necessarily among the media, but even among members themselves where people are sort of talking about it more. So I do feel like that probably contributed to it. I feel like the Irishman got their nomination, you know, out of as soon as like five film critics saw it, it was like going to be nominated for the freaking Oscars. So it's like that one was in. I mean, 1917, even though everybody's so surprised, that was a favorite even before anybody had seen it just because of, you know, the subject matter. People were impressed with the ambition of the cinematography. The only wild card really was The Joker. I mean, I think because that was such a controversial movie, people felt one way strongly and felt the other way very strongly. So 
No, I, I, I don't know how to explain the kind of sameness. I mean, but one of the problems is, you know, you have all these awards and many are the same people voting over and over again. <laughs> members of SAG are also members of the Academy. Members of the DGA are also members of the Academy. So it's like, are they going to change their minds in two weeks? No. Why do you think that this year in particular, it seems like everything's falling into lockstep like that? It's funny, even performances and movies that you like, you suddenly start to feel disgruntled about just because they're like winning all the awards and it gets kind of boring for, you know, us, basically. How do you feel about those? the fact that those four acting categories seem so lined up this year? At this point, when you say disgruntled, we're all disgruntled. Um, <laughs> and you do wish, you. I mean, I'm praying on Oscar night for for a surprise. You know, you just want something to to add a little bit of electricity to the show. With the performances, they're just big performances. Actors love big performances. Every f- branch of the Academy loves big things and showy things. And, you know, we've talked about this a bit. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix, very E for effort, A for capital A acting, 52 pounds, also, he's due. Okay, so everything with the Oscars is, is all about timing. So Renee Zellweger, she's going to win a second Oscar, and you're like, wow, you know, some great women have never won an Oscar, and here's Renee Zellweger, a fine actress, but she's going to have two now, and isn't that interesting? Playing Judy Garland for a movie that not that many people loved, but everyone kind of thought she gave a very empathetic performance. And no other actress could get a toehold in in winning an award outside of critics groups. And then Pitt and Dern are just they've they've never won an Oscar for acting, and they're loved in the city and in the industry. And so here they are. But to what extent are the Oscars now, especially in the acting categories, meant as like some kind of a lifetime achievement award? Like, has it become harder <laughs> for a younger? performer to to break through and to get an award for, say, Florence Pugh to get supporting actress over Laura Dern? Or I'm I'm sort of, I keep blanking on who else is nominated for Best Actress simply because they've only been talking about (laughs) Renee Zellweger. It's easier for women. It's easier for lead actresses. The Academy loves to give the lead actress prize to a young, Mm -hmm. yeah. And, but for men, you almost, you know, it's very rare Usually, you have to be at least 40 for a man to win lead actor. There's a reason for that, though. I mean, the acting category, the male acting category is always more crowded and always more competitive because the movies that we consider Oscar worthy are always about men, or 99% of the time are about men. So, so that sort of, you know, weights the field. So it is more competitive than for women because, I mean, you have like, you know, Renee Zellweger is going to get an Oscar for a movie that got, what, did it get any other nominations? I don't even think it got no. like... Hair and one more. Like, hair and makeup, yes. Hair oh, and makeup, wow. okay. Yes. So that's good, but wasn't even mentioned in consideration. You know, Harriet, she's nominated, the movie was nominated for song otherwise. So it's like, so you have like this big disconnect between the female acting category in which many of the nominees are not attached to Best Picture. Mm compared to the men who mm-hmm. are like you know most of the pictures this year had two strong 
male leads. And so then the question is, which one's supporting, which one's lead? Yeah, and Brad Pitt, to me, is clearly a lead. Yeah, in Once Upon absolutely. a Time in Hollywood. So but like they, what, did they flip know. a coin? I mean, it's like, come on. Yeah. And meanwhile, it's I guess you could say Little Women, but Saoirse was the lead of that. And I mean, I think Florence Pugh was terrific. And that was one of the best performances I've seen in a movie. It's interesting, these perceptions of do-ness where like... Raina Zellweger, excellent actress, and I and I think she's really good in Judy. And um, but it is interesting too. I think the fact that she's won one before, but it was a supporting mm-hmm. actress Oscar for Cold Mountain, so people feel like okay, she deserves that that lead in sort of the same way that Kate Blanchett did with Aviator, and then many years later winning lead for Blue Jasmine. Joaquin Phoenix, whom I'm. First off, he's been giving some of the best speeches on the circuit. That alone, I'm happy he's going to win. I like that performance more. It's not my favorite of his performances by any means, but he is, to me, one of our great living actors. Totally, totally earned it. It's fine. And Brad Pitt, it's like, I actually think this is one of the best things he's done in a really long time. So I don't think this is just career achievement. I would have liked to see him win for Moneyball or Tree of Life that that year. I mean, and Ad Astra this year as well. And Laura Dern, you know. I would have loved to see her win for Inland Empire, but that's not going to happen. So it's like, so here she is in this, you know, kind of classic, almost Beatrice Strait kind of supporting, scene-stealing, supporting role. And um, and that's great. I wish, these, you know, actors are one thing, you know, they're overdue and you, you want to wait for the right role or just the right narrative for them to come along. And just to go back to Parasite, the only thing that I care about this whole Oscar season, it's like, there's no sense of urgency to make that history, it feels like. The history of having your first non-English language movie mm. to win. I mean, I think this movie has come mm. closer than probably anyone. I think it's come closer than Roma. Who knows? I know it's probably going to be 1917, although I still hold out hope. But there isn't, you know, in terms of like what the Academy wants to do, what kind of history it wants to make, it's a little disappointing, I think, just that. And I think it's changing. The Academy membership is diversifying and it's growing. and Slowly. Slowly. Yeah. Incrementally. And, some, you know, someday it's, it's just, it will, it's bound to happen if the right movie comes along. I feel like that is the right movie in this point in time. And I want to get back to that in just a minute, but Glenn, first I want to ask you about something else that Justin brought up, which is Joaquin Phoenix and the fact that he's been giving these thoughtful, moving, pointed, often political speeches that really have been one of the highlights of this season. And I think it's been a real surprise to people that this is the way he's decided as someone who is notorious for not enjoying publicity that much, I maybe realized that he was not going to be able to avoid this, so he sort of leaned into it in a really provocative way. What do you make of that, of just the way he has sort of dealt with the idea of the season? And does it actually have an impact on voters? Like, the fact that he's been getting up and feeling like a presence, making himself felt in that way, is that a plus for Oscar voters as they're filling out their ballots? Oh, absolutely. And his speeches, I mean, he's really been growing as a orator. So, I mean, that first Golden Globe speech, I love every time he'll rub his face, he'll start rubbing his face, and you don't know what he's going to say, (laughs) and that's just the best. There's tension. There's some tension in the air as he's kind of rubbing his face and kind of like it appears that he's working it out in real time even though like his SAG speech he saluted the other nominees I mean he's obviously thought about it but when he's up there on stage there's just like this this feeling like it's unpredictable and he could just snap in any possible direction good or bad Um, but he's been breaking good the whole uh, you know the whole (laughs) award season and it's it's funny you 
our friend and colleague Tim Grierson presented him with Best Actor for the Master at our LA Film Critics Dinner a few years ago, mm. and he looked also visibly uncomfortable, mm-hmm. kind of doing that thing, um, and <laughs> and I think said like five <laughs> words, just like oh, brevity is the soul of wit, and I'm and thank you, and so he left or something like that. I'm paraphrasing, and it's interesting because you know that scene that climactic scene from Joker at the end feels like a yes. throwback to his I'm still here uh, era David Letterman mm-hmm. thing wasn't it when he mm-hmm. when he just froze up and this is weird you know obviously performance art guerrilla style performance art thing that he's doing with Joker that calls back to some moments from his own career and I don't know it, it feels like you do wonder are we still being punked like is he having played like the single mm. most vile reprehensible character of the whole season uh, someone who is taken as like some incel avatar by many and now here he is making statements about veganism and about diversity (laughs) and about and so and graciously i am such a fan when actors actually take the time to praise their fellow nominees in specific detail by name clearly showing that they've seen the damn movies as opposed to just saying i'm so happy to be with such extraordinary actors you know so he alone gets (laughs) points from me for that Right, really, uh, and I, really and I, thoughtful yeah. appreciations at the SAG Awards, like absolutely. just from the heart. And yeah. you ask if that has an impact? Absolutely. I mean, it makes you. This is a really gracious speech here. Yeah, Mary, you recently wrote a very nice piece about the actress Laura Dern, mm-hmm. and it's funny. I am so conflicted in my feelings about Laura Dern this season, simply because she is a tremendous actress with a, a fantastic career. She's a terrific ambassador for the industry, the way that she's recently slid so easily into kind of moving between television work and film work that just feels like someone who's like an avatar of the future of what this is all going to be. And yet, as she's come to dominate the season, winning again and again, I've somehow come to resent her because of the fact that Jennifer Lopez was not nominated in that same category. So in my own mind, I have irrationally cast Laura Dern as some kind of a villain in this narrative that she's not even a part of. And it like I feel very weird now about like Laura's Oscar, my own feelings. It's just to become really for me personally, it's become very complicated. So maybe you can help me unravel some of that. Okay. Well, I have the name of a good therapist. Um, and before I answer your question, I do want to say one thing, just in case anybody who is nominated for an Oscar is listening to this podcast, please, dear God, write a speech. Yes. Please, dear God, rehearse it in front of the mirror. You are actors. You are in the film industry. You are, like, I'll cut slack for, like, the sound editors. But, like, usually they give very good speeches that they have written down and practiced in front of their family. And it's like, and then these actors get up there and they act like they've never been in front of an audience. They've, oh, my God, I had no idea. It's like, you were one of five. Write a speech. Okay, that's look all at, I have to say. Look at Michelle Williams. She I mean, is your role model. Exactly. Look at what you can do. Look at Joaquin look. Phoenix. I mean, look at how, like, you know, I mean, every once in a while you'll get somebody who really genuinely maybe wrote a speech and is so flabbergasted that they have forgotten their speech. And, like, I can, but honestly, it's like, right, you, you know, whatever. As for, I mean, I think that that happens with a lot of categories. You know, if somebody that you thought should have won and then this other person wins over and over again, you do, like, sort of... I mean, you get resentful. I mean, like, you get resentful. Like, like it's got anything to do with you. That somebody just keeps winning over and over again, but it's kind of like, okay, well, if we're, you know, if everybody's agreed that this was the best performance, then she's going to win over and over again. But I, you know, I love Laura Dern, so, like, it's hard to pick on her. There are a lot exactly. of other people exactly. that, like, you know... And it, and it, it's so clearly not her fault. I mean, what do you <laughs> want her to do? I guess you could give it to J-Lo, but it's like, that doesn't seem right either. She worked very hard. 
And now I want to get back to, Justin, as you brought up, uh, Parasite, which is a movie I have found fascinating in the sort of the ecology of award season and that I can't remember the last time a movie felt so organic within award season that, yes, they've campaigned very hard, although it has turned out that Bong Joon-ho is a wonderful presence as part of the season. I mean, he just, again, has given warm, charming, wonderful speeches time again, many times, multiple speeches in a single night. Whether Parasite ends up winning or not, it has somehow, like, taken on award season in this really original and organic way. Yeah, it's really great. I mean, I think that, I mean, people really enjoy the movie. And I think in that enjoyment... They see that, you know, it didn't get a cinematography nomination, but it got an editing nomination. Um, it won the Ace Editors Award. People realized this is a tightly cut movie. It's got a lot of guild support, mm-hmm. which is, even though it didn't win the DGA or the PGA, which went to 1917, I think Parasite is clearly the number two favorite of the industry. And that's huge. The SAG win, it's just like the actors, you know, maybe most of the, the Screen Actors Guild and the Academy couldn't tell those actors apart or name them by name, God forbid. But they recognized that this was the best ensemble of the year. And I just love how director Bong has just been on the circuit, gently, graciously, playfully schooling everyone, mocking (laughs) everyone at the Beverly Hilton for the Golden Globes about their aversion to subtitles, pointing out that the Oscars are not like a major international film festival. They're kind of a local affair. And he comes off, does this without coming off as petty or ungracious. People just love him and they want to give you know him things. Although, Glenn, your story wasn't it? Am I allowed to talk, quote your story about how Bong got the biggest ovation at the DGA, but mm. everyone voted for Sam Mendes anyways. I think there's something interesting there. There's a little performative aspect. People love, sure. look, at the, look at the cute Korean director. He's yeah. so charming. He's so <laughs> funny. He's so rotund. They kind of like that. They think he's cute, and they know he's super talented. But at the end of the day, are they going to give him best director? Probably not, although I think some of them are going to vote for him. So You're exactly right. Yeah. And I tweeted that out, and, and, yeah. and maybe I was, maybe there was a trans... Very telling what you said, what you tweeted. It was, and I wasn't really meaning to throw shade at the people at my table, but it was kind (laughs) of like, felt that way when the cast of Parasite came on stage at the SAG Awards and got the standing ovation. This was before the award. And I was like, well, where were you when you were voting for the Academy Award nominations for acting? Where were you for these individuals for individual honors? They were absent. Part of that is, could Neon have done more to actually back those actors besides Song Kang-ho more individually? Sure, they could have. You know, they're obviously focusing on Bong. And part of that, part of me think, like, that was a thrilling moment at the SAG Awards. And maybe think, well, maybe this is just yeah. seeing an international cast, seeing a non-American, yeah. seeing an Asian cast for the first time. I think that would bring people, yeah. whatever movie it would be, it would bring them spontaneously to their feet because people want to seem inclusive and enlightened and, and like, they're embracing this group. So... Parasite, I think, has done more to move the needle than any movie. And there's been, you know, and the Academy has been nominating more non-English language movies increasingly for the best picture. And that's to their credit. So even if it doesn't win, I think it's it's really, really pushed the envelope in that respect. Glenn, if it seems like it's come, come down to Parasite in 1917 for best picture, either one of those titles is going to, like, 
beat a lot of the sort of apocryphal stats, like the fact, mm-hmm. you know, the obviously no non-English language film has won Best Picture, so that's like something sort of a reason why Parasite might not win. 1917 does not have an editing nomination, which so that's a reason like why, why it it might not win. Neither have any acting nominations for them. I don't want to say either way, it's a historic night, but either, either way, it seems like it's going to like beat a lot of the stats and the precursors and the things that, you know, we all tell each other to figure these things out. What's it going to mean either way when one of those movies wins? Right. I mean, as as a fan, there are reasons to be optimistic that Parasite could win. I mean, you could explain, easily explain why 1917 doesn't have an editing nomination because of the construction that makes it look like it was one unbroken shot. You know, usually you need that editing nomination. And the fact that 1917 isn't going to win screenplay and Parasite it's looking good for Parasite. Usually, the Best Picture Oscar kind of goes through screenplay. I mean, you've seen a lot of best, you know, more often than not, it does. The foreign language film category, which is now international film, I mean, it exists, and it's been the Academy's, you know, way of honoring international global cinema. We obviously need all, all the recognition we can get for those those films in the United States. Man, I really think that if there was not a separate category that we wouldn't even, I would just, Parasite's winning Best Picture. I wish that South Korea had not submitted Parasite. Mm, yes. It's weird. That would have been awesome, actually. Like if it had been. I mean, ridiculous, too, because right. clearly, but that would have been, But you, you could know? have actually maybe seen it happen. Because you, you like, think totally. that the, the, the Academy will give Parasite the international Oscar. Right. And therefore feel like they've taken care of it and be less inclined for Best Picture or even screenplay or director or some other categories. I think there are a lot of voters who are going to vote at number one Best Picture and also vote for international film. But I think there are enough voters who will feel that that separate category, that international film category, as was the case with Roma last year. And this is not Roma last year. This is a movie that is much more loved than the admired Roma. But I think there are enough voters who are going to say, yeah, I voted for it here. I also really like 1917 or I also really like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or God forbid, I also really like Jojo Rabbit. And they're going to, you know, so they're going to split their vote that way. Mary, one point that kind of comes from this is, to me, one thing I found interesting is I've been thinking about like what's going to happen on Sunday is that how many movies that seem like big Oscar-y type movies probably going to end up winning Nothing? Well, I mean, most people who go in there walk away empty-handed. So that's sort of the way it goes. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I go back and forth on the idea of spreading it around. Because sometimes, you know, for me, this would be one of the years, and this is me, one of the years where you would spread it around. Because again, I don't feel like, I, I love Parasite. I do not feel the way you feel. I mean, I understand. I love for how it's expanding our definition of what is an excellent movie. And I think a lot of times, like when you were talking about the standing ovation versus actually giving them the damn award, I think it all comes down to our preconceived notion of what is an Oscar picture and how that has to change and how we nibble at the edges, but there is still a default image of what is a best picture Oscar winner. And I think with that, we can wrap things up this week. And we'll all be eager to see what kind of Oscar night we have this year. So stay tuned. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Thanks, Mark. Thank Thanks. you. See you Sunday. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to our producer, Paige Heimson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heffner. Subscribe to The Real on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. You can also visit us at latimes.com forward slash the real.